Hello! Welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and today's guest is Stephen Jenkinson. If you have not heard of Stephen, you are in for a true treat, a delight. This man is wildly impressive. He is a cultural activist, he's a teacher, he is an author. He co-founded a school called the Orphan Wisdom School, which does workshops and teachings. He has a master's of theology from Harvard University. He has a master's in social work from the University of Toronto. For many years of his life, he worked in palliative care, supervising a team of individuals in one of Canada's largest facilities, basically working with people in their homes and as they approached death. He is uh, the author of a book called Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. He also wrote a book called Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. He is the subject of a feature-length documentary called Grief Walker, which is a portrait of his work with dying people. He has books, recordings, DVDs. He's now actually the front man in a band that's like a rock and roll slash philosophical musing smorgasbord. We touch on that a little bit at the end of the episode, as well as I've included a song from his band. You can check that out. This conversation is just, um, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Stephen is wise, genuinely oozing an embodied kind of knowledge that is so rare in our world today. We actually discussed this during our conversation, what it's like to not have a community of elders. We talk about why elders are so vital. We talk about death, how to die good as opposed to dying badly. It's jammed packed with huge topics conveyed in a poetic and elegant manner. You're probably going to want to rewind and write some notes down, write some quotes down. He he's a very impressive human. I feel very grateful that he came on the podcast, and I think you're going to really take a lot away from this one. So without further ado, I present Stephen Jenkinson. Let me successfully push two buttons, and okay. oh, away, away we go. So Stephen Jenkinson... Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for your time and making the effort to be here after a long day. Pleasure, and it's very kind of you to invite me. Yes, I um, I guess we we should start with who you are, because I feel like for for those listening who might not have ever heard of Stephen Jenkinson or yeah. or what you do, how do you describe yourself? Like, who- oh man. I mean, you know the answer that's coming, I'm quite sure. I never describe myself, not, not in order to be coy, but because my criteria for who I am is not that authoritative, you know. I, just because I'm here most of the time inhabiting this doesn't mean I've got it clear, really, you know. I mean, there's demographic details that people could point to. Uh, most of them are showing right now. So you can see what, what part on the parabolic curve of life I occupy now. And then um, I guess there's a certain amount of notoriety that's a consequence of, as my mother used to call it, bumping my gums for incessantly for years. And I have a rock and roll band that hasn't been able to perform for 15 months. And so I, I hope I still have a band. <laughs> they haven't told me otherwise, but you never know. And, you know, a few books that have my name on them and a lot of disciplined inquiry to replace opinion. That's a fair characterization. Mm. Just to expand on that last sentence, what is your process for distinguishing opinion from knowledge or wisdom, if Um, any? Yeah, uh, opinion is not that keen on learning. I guess that's the distinction I'd make. So I'm lucky I didn't mention I have a school or I had a school back in the good old days of congregation. And, um, and in the school, you know, I was adamant. It's, it's called the Orphan Wisdom School. It's not a school about how to not to be an orphan because you're so wise, for example. 
So, you know, orphanhood is at the center of the enterprise. So learning your orphanhood doesn't make you less an orphan. It makes you more an orphan. Knowledge is a kind of swollen proposition, basically. You could say, you could think of it this way. Um, when you know something, you never, you never walk around saying, well, I used to know this thing, but now I don't know that anymore. I mean, I've never heard anybody say such a thing. Why? Because knowledge is permanent, right? Once you know something, it's a known something. And you just keep adding to it. And that's what PhDs are, you know, higher, deeper in every way. That's what I mean by swollen. In that sense, they're like the intellectual equivalent of suburbs, just an endless sprawl of certainty um, imposed upon the countryside. Mm. Okay. Learning, on the other hand, is a costly proposition because most known things go the way of all flesh when you begin to learn for real, when your learning is, is a radical kind. It doesn't mean you replace old known things with new known things. And so by that measure, elders have, they know the least. That's their job description, is to know the least having been winnowed by learning. And I'm in the general precinct of elderhood now, doing everything I can to rid myself of knowledge. <laughs> I'm, I'm really grateful that you opened up the idea of elderhood because from where I sit, I think you and I share that idea that elderhood is a vital cog, so to speak, that's missing in the grander machination of, of life and culture and, and society. And so I am interested in, um, in anything you have to share about what it means to be an elder and why they are important and or missing right now. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I do have a book <laughs> that's 400 pages plus of that allegation. So, you know, and I did labor over it. So there it is. So there's that. It's mm -hmm. called Come of Age. Um, but not to be too coy with your question, though. Um, let me work backwards from what happened to it. Okay, so this is going to sound a little formulaic only because I came up with it. And, and so it, it tends to be, it's my idea of this thing has taken on my habits, if you will. So I'm going to sound very sure of myself. It's a temporary lapse in judgment, okay, just to get something said. So here we go. So there was a time I didn't live, I didn't see it because it was gone along by the time I appeared. So you have no choice in the matter whatsoever at your age. But there was a time when the proliferation of the old among us meant a certain something. Now, there's all kinds of local vagaries. So I'm, I'm generalizing to see if I can make the idea available, right? Uh, one of the things it meant for sure was um, that the bad old days of um, scarce food supply, political upheaval, diminished sense of well-being, among a host of other things, they were all at rest instead of at play. Because that stuff's very hard on the very young and the very old, right? So when you're in a hard, hard time culturally or in terms of war or things like this, one of the great unsuspected calamities that befalls a people is that they lose their broadcast bandwidth, demographically speaking, and they end up with a lot of young people and middle-aged people who, are, who tend to be cultish in their attractions. What I mean by that is they tend to be attracted to their own and exclude the wider range. So I've had, I can't tell you how many young people say your age and younger have come up to me and say, at the end of one of these talks and say, I had no realization that there's no such thing beyond my family as a young person in my life or an old person in my life. Okay. So, so we go back to the scenario then. So that's what old people used to mean. It, mean, it meant that we were doing pretty good. They were a kind of upside indicator, right? Mm. Okay. 
What do they mean now? Because we got more old people in our midst than we've ever had across the planet. This is true. It means that we've overwhelmed the old indicators by more or less arbitrarily seeing to it that we live longer, assuming that that is its own reward without ever asking the world if it minds if we're around for another 20, 30 years beyond what we did when I was born, you see. So, so the imagined upside is all attributed to us. But of course, there's terrific downside for everything that sustains us the longer we insist on being sustained, okay? So I would propose, you know, just as a, as a thought, as an idea, I would say to you, that the way age gets turned into elderhood or agedness becomes elderhood is on the way to agedness, aging people were diminished and deepened thereby by frailty and by finitude and by endings. And that's how old people came by their elderhood to have been buffeted by life so thoroughly that they're bereft of opinions about anything. And all they've got left is this kind of faithful witness capacity. If you ever want to know how it is, that's how you go to who you go to, because they've got no vested interest in bullshitting you or seeing to it that you're happier than you used to be. Because you asked, so they're going to tell you. And so what's happened to age is it's been, it's bereft of its limitations. The frailties are still there, but man, you can't die anymore. You know, I know that's a strange thing to say in a time of plague, but I think you know what I mean by this. Uh, um, they used to call pneumonia the old man's friend, not that long, not that many generations ago. It means you had an ally at the end of your life who was going to make its ending quicker than it would otherwise be. And the understanding there was of tremendous grace available to you. Not the old man's foe, the old man's friend. You have no friends at the end of your life anymore. Why? Because the whole operation is a war on your ending. So without endings, you can't have elders. Without frailty, you can't have elders. You just got a proliferation of bitter, uh, to a large degree, let's call it uh, pre-senile old people, right? Mm -hmm. And this is not in any way demeaning old people as a group. I mean, look at me, I can see my own agedness from where I sit. So I'm not, I'm not spitting into the wind here, but I know the difference between elderhood and agedness. And agedness is what you see in the old folks' home. And elderhood, you have a hard time finding it. And one of the great haunting indicators of that is if you go to enough of these retreat centers, well, in the days when you could, you would see an awful lot of late middle-aged and old people in these retreat centers. And I'm going to whisper to you what they were doing there. They were looking for elders too. And that's a degree of heavy weather that I don't know that the world has seen very much, that old people are looking for elders too, which means during the course of their lived life, all of its 80 plus years, they didn't have elders and they're still looking for them now, having no sense of how to segue from looking for one to being one. That's a really interesting idea that old people need like mentorship maybe that's not the right word but guidance or some kind of solidarity that, that they're seeking towards the end of their life still well i don't know about still but now you could say mm. i don't think this is a chronic condition of of agedness not in a place where agedness is held in esteem okay mm. so you've heard this one this it's kind of a joke of a sort and it goes like this there was a time when people would say, respect your elders. And when they said it, 
Were they describing the way things were? In those days, I think they probably were. Were they also prescribing what should be the case? They were. And were they proscribing, you know, any, any kind of faulty way of treating old people? They certainly were. But by and large, it was an affirmation. Respect your elders was an affirmation of the prevailing weather when it came to the relationship between the generations. So something's happened, clearly mm. something's happened. This is not a matter of opinion, okay? People still may use the phrase from time to time, but generally speaking, if this phrase is leveled at younger people, they are probably within their rights to say, and who would that be? Who are you asking me to respect? Show me one so I can do the thing that you're telling me I have to do. That's a heavy, that's heavy weather, but wait, there's one more piece to it. Like so many of these things that enjoy sort of currency as a phrase, it's missing a piece. And the piece that's gone is gone for a reason. And the reason is because it was too hard to do when the full phrase was there. But the truncated phrase is much easier to do because it fits on a fridge magnet, see? And the elaborate version is this, respect your elders and they shall conduct themselves respectfully. Okay, mm -hmm. and you know that that's one of the things that's happened, is the capacity of older people to conduct themselves as being worthy of the respect that should be so, has become so fundamentally compromised. And the evidence is so abundant and drastically clear on this matter, that respecting your elders becomes a way of trying to object to the prevailing winds of your time instead of trying to get in line with it. Hmm. So this is a long-winded way of saying that I don't have a cohort to belong to. I don't have a, a group, you know, as you asked me earlier, of kinship that I can align myself with and say the word we with any kind of relief or pleasure or sense of inclusion or well-being. The people I'm talking about when I say we, as in the people of my generation or slightly older, are so horrifically compromised by their track record that it's not a group as the Groucho Marx saying used to be. It's not, I, I wouldn't want to belong to that group that would have me as a member. Yeah, and that, I know that's an indictment and I'm fessing up that that's exactly, it's exactly what it is. How does that feel to not have a cohort? It's lonely, man. Yeah. Okay, it's straight up lonely. I will never have a kinship of a kind of companionship that is reciprocally derived and sustaining. Not with anyone. I mean, I foreclose upon that a little hastily. Let's imagine that the, but the, the odds aren't good. Mm. This is why... My book about dying has sold extremely well over the years. My book about elderhood has sold less than half of what the dying book is. Do you know why? Because the people it's about don't buy it. Do you know why they don't? Because they don't like the characterization of them that's in it. And I don't blame them. And I keep using the word them to describe them. I know I do. And I'm not pretending I secretly have an allegiance with people your age. I'm not saying that at all. I, used, I said lonely to answer your question. I didn't say, you know, I have a secret, you know, secret handshake deal with people your age and it's plenty good enough. It's not good enough at all. It doesn't replace anything. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I really appreciate your honesty in answering that question. Uh -huh. um, part of your your description a moment ago about this idea of respecting your elders, I think I, I agree with, and I, I'm trying to think through how I would approach that. I, I feel like there's generally misinterpreted relationship between the word elder and elderly, as if, so when I hear respect your elders, I think the, the little punk teenager in me thinks, why? Like just because somebody is older than me doesn't mean that they are this wide, sage necessarily right and so i feel like 
somebody who is an elder is elderly, but not everybody who is elderly is an elder. Is that a fair distinction? More than fair. And um, you said, uh, what was it? You had this great line. Yeah, that there's a lot of old people, but not a lot of old wisdom is a line I heard in one of your videos. Okay, so I've already, I've bought your book and in full confession, I hadn't heard of you until like a week ago. And I, and I emailed and said, hey, I'd love to have Stephen on the podcast. And your lovely partner said, how about in two days? And I was like, okay, but I have not had time to, to digest his, his knowledge. Although I did attend your workshop a week ago, as was recommended by a friend, Connor Beaton, who you were on his podcast called Man Talks a little while back. And you talked a lot about this idea of loss and grief and death. I'm curious if we may briefly touch on what it means to die wise, as is the title of your your previous book, and maybe any experiences that you want to share about that chapter of your life. I don't think the chapter's written. <laughs> it's not finished, as you can clearly see, because I'm talking to you. Right. But, uh, but I, what I meant by that was like, you're like a rock and roller now. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Yeah. These things are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> I don't know many people that are embodying both of them, but you're talking to one. Okay. So, well, the, the book Die Wise derives from the time that I spent in the trenches, or what I call the death trade. What you would know probably is palliative care or end of life care. It didn't start out its life as an expose or as an indictment, but it probably turned in that direction by the time it was done. I, I, I admit that. It's, it wasn't me a case of me playing gotcha with the people I worked with. I don't name anybody. There's no, there's no morality in doing so. There's no honor in doing so because they were up against the same things I was up against, which is in a, in a consumer culture, where virtually every practitioner has been seconded to the project of being a customer satisfaction specialist in a culture that detests limits of all kinds and sneers at endings and therefore has no capacity where death is concerned. And you're working in an institution where people are dying every minute of every day. The question becomes, what shall be your job? In other words, how are you going to be understood by the people you're working on if you're not in collaboration with their anti-death orientation to life? Let me say that question, which was a long-winded question. I did pretty well to keep it straight, I should say. Let me say it to you differently, and I think you'll see what I mean. It's a story that happened some maybe 10 years ago. It's a very simple email, and it went like this. The woman was probably early middle-aged, and she said, my father's dying now. We've had a pretty good relationship, but not great. Now he's dying, and I've read Die Wise, and I'm very excited, which is never a good sign. I'm very excited at the prospect of giving him a, I think she said this, a Die Wise death or the Die Wise treatment or something like that. So my simple question to you is this. My father, who's otherwise a reasonable guy, absolutely refuses to talk to me about his dying in any way, shape, or form. So I just need to know from you, how is it that I can respect his wishes not to talk about it and give him the die-wise treatment? What was my answer? You can't. What? You can't. Here's why. Respect my father is code for something. And I know what it is. It's my father will signal back to me that he knows that I'm respecting him and that he feels respected by me. There's only one way to achieve that, and that's to corroborate his take on things and his refusal to talk about it as if it were his right. Okay? So when I say it's not possible, I'm saying you can't do the die-wise thing on a man who refuses to know that he's dying and refuses to conduct himself with you as if he is. That is a circumstance that cannot be respected. It may be tolerated, it may be born, it may be 
coped with, but it'll never be respected, right? Because respect means you see the inherent needfulness of that and you're willing to corroborate its presence in the world. And I'm here to tell you, I was the witness to too many circumstances in which people thought they had to write to die the way they wanted, which mostly included refusing to die. And I can tell you this as a promise, the collateral damage and the intergenerational consequence of dying badly, none of those consequences accrued to the dying person. All of them accrued to their survivors, their next of kin, and to kids who weren't even born at the time that that bad death took place. So in other words, you die as a cultural citizen, not as a psychodynamic autonomous being. All of the consequences that emanate from your way of dying are cultural, community-leveled, village-minded, and they, that's where all the consequences are lived out. You, who botched it on your way out, don't have to live one of the consequences you put into motion by doing so. That is a sociopathic thing to do. See, so I'm, I'm saying obviously that the obligation to die wise is a moral and political obligation, much more than it's a, a psychic option. Mm. And so you die as a culture worker first and foremost, or you die as a culture destroyer. Yeah. Hmm. It sounds like what you're saying, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, but that an individual death is larger than itself. Like your death is not about you as much as it is about the community at large. Okay. We die individually, yes, but there are no individual deaths, by which I mean we're talking at the level of meaning and consequence here. We're not talking at the level of event, right? Okay. So obviously you die, quote, on your own, if you will, unless you happen to be in some multiple car wreck or something like that. You die unto other people. And the meaning of your life is in the hands of others, no matter how much authority you try to exercise. In fact, let's go further and say... Your attempt to exercise authority and dominion over the meaning of your life will be part of what your life meant when other people talk about you after you die. Mm. Dude was a control freak, man. And his worst problem with control was trying to control what his life meant. Who wants that for a meaning? Now, I should say that these are fairly caustic things to say aloud. I'm well aware of it. And I'm not saying that in the, at least in the corner of North America that I'm familiar with, that there's a lot of amiable and valid and viable living options to being an atomic individualist. I, I freely grant that that's true. So what I'm saying is something that could be, could come down to this. Every death carries with it certain redemptive power and the redemption i'm talking about is the redemption of the agonizing individual loneliness of our crowded world you are a beautiful speaker my man um one one metaphor that um this reminded me of i saw in one of your videos you were speaking to a woman who was approaching death and you said something to the effect of how you die sets the table for how your family will eat in the future. Right. Um, do you mind expanding on that briefly or is that, is that exactly what you were just stating? <laughs> yes, it's exactly what I was just saying. So that's a right. nice segue. She didn't have to jump very far to make it. But what I meant, you're, you're talking about a, a period, a scene in the film Griefwalker. Uh, the woman was indeed dying. She had two kids who were in her late teens, probably. But they were uh, what's known in the trade as a blended family. So the kids were from two different unions, if you will. And I knew that her principal dilemma was, as she anticipated the oncomingness of her death, she wondered whether or not her family was going to stay together as a family, because although she didn't say it, 
She had been the glue that kept this, this um, two-faced family together. And in her absence, it wasn't clear at all that these people would choose each other as life kinship companions. See, that was her dilemma. And so with that as the background, I said, you're not going to be able to see to it that these people are going to stay together by you staying around. How do I know that this, aside from the fact that you're dying, the answer is, well, you stayed around until now and it's touch and go for these people staying together, isn't it? Okay, so there's your limitation looking at you. And this, I know this is an awful thing to contemplate when you're dying. Like you don't have enough to think about? Well, okay, dying's a big deal, it's for grown-ups. So what do you want from me to make it easier? You know, that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to make it more available or accessible as something you do, not something you tolerate or cope with, right? So that's, that was my pitch to her. Understand you're dying as your last act of mothering and then translate. And so from that perspective, what would a, a good loving death look like for that woman? Like what, what could she have done to maximize the chances of her family staying together? Yeah, well, first of all, we should say, we shouldn't be in a position of saying to it that they should stay together. We don't know. That's true. Okay. But that's her. See, but my job was not customer satisfaction. So I don't have to be seconded to that project, mm. but I can certainly be seconded to the project of on the other side of this woman's death, these three people need to be saner as individuals and together than they were when she was alive. Mm. I can say that I can get behind that whatever form it takes is basically for them to live out, right? Mm. So what could she have done is your, your question? Well, I mean, there's, finally, it's not, it's not something that anybody should be in a position to dictate, but the idea could be something like, the messier your dying is, the more inclusive it is of other people. The more you subvert the instinct to turn, to turn dying into a personal possession a kind of centripetal, self-absorbed, family and close friends only thing. One of the worst things I saw was in a way the most benign, that the dying person became a rock star in their families and amongst their friends. And everybody wanted to get close and everybody wanted to peace and everybody wanted to be there, right? Just to do, to do what? Are you bringing anything to it? No. You secretly know that this is another kind of peak experience that's available to you. You're trying to get in on it without having to die yourself to do so. Sounds a little macabre when you put it that way. I know, I saw it over and over again. I mean, there's so many things I could tell you about what I saw in the death trade days that made me the rather intolerant beast I seem to be right now. But this is not intolerant speaking, this is brokenheartedness speaking. I'm saying it does not have to be as bad as it is. Nothing close. But what has to happen is some kind of revolution in our understanding of what sanity is. And one of the first prerequisites of doing so is enough already with the idea that it's your life. It does not belong to you in any sense of the term. It's not your possession. And you don't have the owners and operators manual for it anyway. Okay, so the wisdom begins with the understanding that it's not yours. It's a loner. It's a beater. Okay. And you have to you have to give it back in at least as good a condition as when you got it. Mm. And that's what dying is, is giving it back. And so you don't want to, you know, burden your family with a kind of depreciated mess called your life because you exercise so much obscene dominion over it. Well, I, I feel like, Stephen, that I could, I could talk to you for like a week and barely skim the surface of your experience. Um, uh, I'm curious about the, the idea of regrets and yeah. how they relate to having a good death or a bad death. Wow, that's a great question, man. 
Let me see what I can do. Now you've cued me to one of the songs or pieces we do with the Knights of Grief and Mystery Band. Okay, let me see if I can, if I can give you the whole thing minus the band. It's been a long time, okay? So don't hold me to it, but let me see what I can do. Well, with all of this, of course there are regrets. Of course there are regrets. Down along the fence line, in the back 40 of your life, there's a pile of stones there, your regrets. If you don't go down there and visit them often, you'll end up thinking that there's no pile there at all, which is never true, or that it makes a pile a mile high and there's no point, which is almost never true. Uh oh, I'm blanking. When the end of things comes into view, that's a good time to go and visit that little altar, for that's what the ending of things turns it into, an altar, a place to pray. You could add to the pile by how you are with dying and with ending, or you could climb. If you're asking me, climb. Pick up one stone at a time and hold it in some regard remembering and put it down again and go to the next one remembering as you go you will find it's not all bad when you get to the top look around that is the great and vast field of your life finally visible at a glance you can only really see it from up there, that's the big story. It goes something like that. So everything, everything I would have to say, that's not bad considering I haven't done that in a year and a half. Um, that's what I have to say about regrets. They're, they're mandatory. Most of them are not consequences. They're willingnesses to realize. And in that sense, they're, they're a grief endorsed moral intelligence that's what regrets are there should not be poisonous and and toxic okay they become that way when shame enters into the story the purpose of regrets is to understand if you're lucky enough to have regrets before the ending of your days you might be able to introduce some redress into your life the failure to see them as regrets will always make you combative, defensive, and unassailable, which is not a good way to die, because you will die a defeated husk of a human being if that's the way that you come to your ending. Mm. So you practice your ending by how you are with your regrets, just the same way that culturally speaking, we practice with our elders how we will be with our ancestors. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. It's <laughs> really good. I have a I have a quote that I wrote down that you stated that I'm intrigued to okay. hear more about. And okay. it was from when you worked in palliative care and you said I was as dangerous as I could figure out how to be. Right. Uh -huh. And I I loved that line and I think it's a entry point, so to speak, for some introspection or some knowledge transmission. So what, what did you mean by that and how did you resolve it? You know, I've pretty much I've already told you the gist of it was this danger has nothing to do with recklessly throwing over the furniture in somebody else's life. That's not dangerous. That's obscene malpractice. That's what that is. And it's inhuman and inhumane at the same time. But I use the word dangerous very deliberately because danger basically is a, is a consequence of your limitations, of the limitations you insist upon. Anything beyond those limitations inherently is dangerous to you. One of my responsibilities with dying people was to bring them to their dying. Very counterintuitive for them. 
understandably so. And they didn't know how to do it. And they didn't want to be able to learn how to do it. So you begin to see already that if my task is to get them to die, you know, as, li as lucidly and as vividly and as consciously and wisely as it was possible to do, then I was going to run headlong into their self-appointed task to not die at all, wasn't I? Which makes me what? A dangerous person from their point of view, right? But that's Manip what I mean. That's what I mean. Manipulative in some sense. I'm sorry? Manipulative in some sense. I don't think so. Uh, because there's no way to redeem the odious qualities of manipulative. What I'm describing to you is a circumstance in which, I mean, don't forget, I've just tried to make the case with you for the last half an hour that the consequences of dying badly do not end with you. You cannot contain them, but you're fundamentally responsible for their proliferation. This is me acting on that understanding. Hmm. That's why it's not manipulative. It's a social justice proposition to die wisely or submit yourself to someone who has this understanding. Yes, I, I fear there's a miscommunication there. So I'm saying that when you were doing that back in the day during palliative, palliative care and you felt that you were dangerous, is it because there was some aspect of your job description that felt manipulative? Oh, uh, very good. Good, good clarification. Yeah. Uh, not, I wouldn't have called it manipulative. I would have called it derelict. Mm. I would have called it truant more than manipulative. It right. stopped desperately short of what was needed. Mm. Yeah, I suppose it wasn't manipulative because you didn't realize at the time that it was bad. So oh, I did. I, pretty oh. early on, I did. All right. Yeah, this is why I don't have a lot of drinking buddies from those days. And, and I'll say it again, you know, these people were up against the same problems I was, trying to figure out how to be useful in a troubled time when people didn't want you to be in their lives at all. But mm. if you're a physician or a nurse, at least you could prescribe and lay on of hands. And this, by the time you got to me, what did I have that anybody wanted? Nothing. See, I had to invent uh, a purposefulness to my activity. I had to invent it. I didn't have a job that reaffirmed day in and day out that I was on the right track. I suppose going back to what you stated at the beginning was there was a lack of elders to kind of guide you Dude, into this profession. You said it. There's, there were no professional elders mm. or the elders of the profession, if you will. There, there weren't. There were highly regulated physicians who were on the, the apex of the liability scenario. So I'm not saying anything horrific about doctors per se. I'm saying they had the worst deal imaginable, mm. that they were most exposed in terms of personal and professional liability, and yet they were obliged to work collegially with all these people who were much less exposed. How would you ever be able to work that out as a professional person day in and day out on the job, you see? Mm. Now, this was virtually unlivable, and they lived it every day. But for all of that, they blinked. I'll say that. They blinked more than once. Mm. Yeah. Stephen, I'm conscious of your time and energy. We had set aside 45 minutes, but I, I do know that you have a new career of sorts or a new chapter slash path, and I'm going to include a song um, okay. from your band at the end of the episode, but perhaps you could discuss what that is and how that came to pass. It's uh -huh. an interesting thing. It sounds like you're doing a, a hybrid of, of deep philosophical musings combined with rock and roll put on as a show or a spectacle of sorts. Yeah, I'd leave out the spectacle characterization if you're asking me. Uh, of course. Because what we're trying to do is eliminate the notion of spectator in how we conduct ourselves. So we're un trying to undo the conceit of audience and enlist them as co-conspirators in, in an evening of fundamental undoing. That's what it is. See, the, the phrase Knights of Grief and Mystery occurred to me as, <laughs> like at least I was fessing up to what it was, you know? 
I think it's wonderful. A night of fundamental undoing is maybe the best marketing line I've heard for, for an event. <laughs> yeah, cognitive dissonance for everybody. That's basically what it's been. Yeah. And um, it relies upon certain stand and deliver abilities that I have, extraordinary musical uh, abilities that my partner in the venture has, and the willingness of a band to take all of their musical learnedness and second it to this bizarre project of me pleading for a better day. Mm. Essentially making the case for a better day, right? And um, you know, why the rock and roll aesthetic? Well, that's the age I am. That's what I grew up with, man. You know, it's not Tchaikovsky, it's tell Tchaikovsky the news, you know? And uh, it's a very animating orientation. I'm not saying we play three chord thrash metal that's not the case in fact we don't i'm not sure that we play any kind of music so i'm saying that the rock and roll might refer to a kind of sensibility mm. which is uh which is devoted to a certain overturning of the current regime there's no blinking on that matter mm. that's true but you know i'm in my mid-60s i'm not exactly standing on the ramparts with a flag i'm doing something else I'm trying to give something like a soundtrack to a revolution where the casualties are all ideological. Mm. In, a, in, a, in a nutshell, that's not bad. You know, when we cross the border, wherever we, you know, we have a lot of international tours under our belt now. When we cross the border, the inevitable uh, exchange takes place. So uh, name of your band uh, doesn't have a name. Your band doesn't have a name. Do you know them? Yeah, I know them. We just don't give it that. Okay, well, what kind of music do you play? Oh, shit, there's two questions into it and I'm not getting out of here alive, right? So I have to say, well, it's not clear that it's any kind of music at all. In fact, it's not really, it's musical, but that doesn't tell you very much. And this, you know, it's way more information than dude even wants to hear about. So I've learned now, we're just gonna say gospel from now on. Mm. It's, the least egregious musical affiliation you can brag about gospel mm. like who can who can be troubled by gospel mm. and and then say what well, you call this thing nights of grief and mystery i mean this literally happened i say yeah and people pay to come to see it i said they do and he shook his head and i said i know i don't get it either and then he let me pass and that's happened a lot of times so mm. so i'm not hiding behind grief and mystery it's a confession that's what it is. Mm. And we deserve it. And after this fucking plague, if there's such a thing as after, we really deserve it now. Mm. So if there was ever a, a kind of artistic, if you will, project that is extraordinarily a child of its time, this would be one. And I'm immensely proud of it. And I have no hesitation in bringing it anywhere and making that kind of case. How did we have a 70 city, four continent tour of a band that can only perform in English? I ask you, how did that happen? Answer is, there's something about what we were doing that translated beyond the limitations of language. Mm. That's a true thing. And I'm, I'm very proud of that and happy to stand by it. Yeah, it, it sounds almost like an invitation to belonging or an invitation That's to feeling, good. something like that. That's Well, an invitation to get on the other side of your feelings, even mm. more so, and yeah. begin to occupy the position of a kind of radical uh, citizenship that recalibrates what it means to be a citizen of a troubled time, which means you're not led by all the rights that that's supposed to grant you. You're led by the responsibilities that those rights derive from. That's the case basically that we're making. How to be a citizen radicalized in a troubled time, not a free radical who flips the bird at citizenship. And there's, you're back to the cultural worker understanding again, mm. as we were talking about with, if you're dying, in this case, I'm standing in front of people, I'm being paid to do so, not very much usually. And the consequence of doing so is to make an unwelcome case for what this time asks of us. And then try to make a record with that in mind and then, and then regard it, you know, hope that it survived the translation into recording 
as something that maintains its vivacity as um, as kind of radi been made radioactive by the troubles of the times. That's, mm. that's part of it. Yeah, I suppose you've certainly chosen an interesting period with which to offer this gift to the world. Um, or it chose me. Yes, that's yeah. perhaps more accurate. Uh, Stephen Jenkinson, thank you so much for your time and energy. I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I can't wait to read your books and watch your watch whatever it is that you put out with this, uh, this invitation. And um, yeah, just thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome, man. And I do appreciate the invitation. And I'll just sign off with this. You might imagine that somebody who talks with a, the apparent authority or self-assurance that I do comes away from these interviews and these encounters and says, well, I nailed that one or something to that effect, you know, and a sense of self-assurance and you know, and, I'll, and I can tell you that what happens is it's an, it's an exercise in no visible means of support. You know, it's a high wire act trying to figure out if you can come up with something that could be useful, even though you've, quote, done it hundreds of times. Yeah. Yeah. And so do, I don't come away from it going, yeah, look at me. I come away from it wondering if I've been able to be any use to people of your age, because that's my self-appointed task now. No, I don't have companionship with people of my age. No, there's no replacing it. But what I have kind of instead is an allegiance to your generation, not an affinity, an allegiance. That's why I'm proceeding. Mm. And so that's my way of saying to you, you gave me the chance at least one more time to wonder if I can stand and deliver with that in mind. Mm. And I'll have to figure out and decide if I did or I didn't, but the chance, that's what you gave me. So the pleasure, if you will, and the honor is mostly mine. I, I appreciate that. And not to pump your tires at all, so to speak, but I can only speak for myself that that conversation was really helpful and profound and your work in the small time that I've been exposed to it feels like, uh, like I found a piece to a, a puzzle that I didn't realize was missing, so to speak. And so I, I do appreciate your work and your, your knowledge has affected me personally. And I, I truly thank you for that. And it's a good deal all around. It is a good deal. And I assure you, others are going to feel the same. I promise. <laughs> well, please, please take care. You too, brother. Be too. well and well, God willing, we'll see you on the road. I would love, I would love to see you on the road. Okay. Right. From your take mouth to God's ear. <laughs> take care, Stephen. Okay. And just so you can get a taste of Stephen's music, this is a track called Fate of his new album, Rough Gods. Enjoy. One. Hey, what time is it? Well, it's the Anthropocene, baby. That's what they're calling it. That means that we're the center of it all. That means we've got our spirit prints on everything. That means wherever we go, there we are. We can't get away from us. That's what time it is. You know, there are kids on your news feed they're on the steps of your city hall. They're at your UN. You've stolen our future. That's what they're saying. You understand it. You understand, don't you? That they're pretty sure that nobody else knows that the sky is falling. Just them. And it's turning them inside out. Be prepared to stop. That's what the signs said. Didn't happen though. So the signs gonna change. Be prepared to be stopped. We haven't got it right. And that's what made their world. We're their fate.
That's how it seems. Now, if you're over 45, you grew up with the idea that almost anything was possible. It was in the air. If you could picture it, or you could do it. Well, everything's possible, maybe, still. But almost all of those things aren't likely now. That's how it is. We're going through it. Kids won't submit to the scrutiny of their seniors anymore. You want to get a whiff of it all? You're going to have to try this. No more sitting across from them, making them the object of your inquiry. Another moral problem to solve. You're going to have to move that chair until you're 45 degrees from them. You won't see them directly or clearly anymore. But you might begin to see them truly. Look off into the middle distance now, in the same direction that they're looking. See if you can see the world that they see. Not see if you can see things their way. It's not them. Not anymore. It's what they're seeing. Now you'll be floored by how much courage it'll take for you to do it. Let it in. Young people are another country. That's what time it is. figure that something's been stolen from them. What they could have been, what they could have had, what they could have done. The world that could have been. The world they imagined that we had. Look, it's hard to argue. All except for that future part. Because that's not as true as it sounds. It's understandable, but it isn't so. They never had the future. They figure we stole from them. It wasn't there before they were born. And we don't have it either. Nobody does. Hear the teeth clenching. Hear the teeth gnashing. That's one of the things that kids are doing with their present. They're burnt and they're blistered by the goneness of a future that they never had. If we've stolen anything from them, maybe it's there now. Because now's the thing that nobody wants anymore. It's too messed up. Now is an orphan. Each day, the kids are going along with that. Not protesting it so much, as agreeing to it, agreeing that they've been stolen from. And grievance will do that to you. Trauma on the installment plan. Being pissed doesn't make you wise. Knowing who the bad guys are doesn't make it bearable. That's what time it is. sitting there talking with an earth rights guy. Now he's doing God's work. And we were talking about what's coming down the pipe, the near future. And that's what I said. Well, here's the thing, man. The starting point now is that it's too late for a lot of things. 
That has to be the starting point. You can see the inertia, right? You see the five-year incremental plans, the government's opting in, opting out in the same year. It's not bad enough. That's the meter. Now work your ass off in the meantime, yeah. I'll do the same. But bad enough, that's probably what you're gonna have to wait for. It's gonna have to get worse. And that'll be the sign. And this is what he said. You can't tell the kids it's too late. It'd kill them. They'll sit in a corner and self-medicate to oblivion. You gotta keep them engaged. Engaged? Hooked, you mean. Hooked on hope. Our hope spoils your taste for the way it is. It spoils you for work. That's what it does. Nobody hopes for the way it is. We hope for the way it isn't. Hope's got that future problem. If you want the kids to vote for you, you can tell them that it's not too late. But you can't do that if you respect them. Ah, so there's no hope? Exactly. There's no hope. None that's worth the trouble. There's no hope worth giving up the present for. So wait. The only way to mobilize kids is to guarantee their future. Or scare them silly with doom. There isn't anything else. No, there is. you demonstrate the capacity to carry weight, you get weighted down. See, that's fate for grown-ups. When there's finally no hope left, you try to leave a scent in the air of what some people did in a time of trouble. The people to come They'll need that. They'll need to know that they come from people who were worthy of coming from. And you don't hope you'll be worthy. You get worthy. Now. That's what time it is. grip of that thing. You can see the lights going out. Feel the air leave the room. The page being turned. What's the point? Is right there. We could call it destiny. It sounds better. But we mean defeat. We mean it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. By the time the Romans handed fate to us, they meant what should be. And that's different from what will be, as anybody who's been around for a while knows. This should, it came from the gods. The word comes from fare, to speak, fate. That was what the gods said. For in those days, the gods spoke 
aloud, and the world was made of their words. Well, long ago the gods said this. You've heard us speak. Now, what will you do? Their spirit prints are all over the way it is. But the fix isn't in. It isn't fatal, baby. It's fate. It comes to this. And what shall we do now that the gods have spoken? And we answer that question every day. And that's what time it is. So, yeah, that was Stephen Jenkinson. I didn't mention in the introduction or in the conversation, but there's a video on his website that I will share in the show notes, and it's, it's called Lost Nation Road, and it's about a 20-minute documentary about Stephen and some of his thoughts and the band and whatnot. It's really, really good. It's beautiful and poetic and incredible, and uh, I kind of devoured his website for an hour or two before I spoke to him, and I remain fairly smitten, as I'm sure you've you've heard in our dialogue. Uh, I find him to be hugely impressive and inspirational in a deeply human way. He seems like a very successful man. I feel like he's living in a way that is both aspirational and obtainable. So thanks for listening. Thanks for all your comments and shares. Thank you for the five-star reviews. If you want to find me on the internet, I'm at Long Distance Love Bombs. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. And um, let me know what you think. If you've got a guest that you want me to interview, send me a message. I am happy to assist where I, where I can. That's it. Go and ponder what the heck just happened in your brain and heart and soul after listening to Stephen Jenkinson talk for an hour. Wow. <laughs>